This is Art House Roadshow, a podcast on film, faith, and mental health with your hosts, Kyle Myers and Hank Spaulding. Today's episode is a MacGuffin with Hank Spaulding. Roadshow podcast. Uh, today we have a special episode, uh, a MacGuffin, which I'll explain what that is in a second. We've already had one MacGuffin, even though we just uh, came up with this name for them uh, recently on Dune and um, the Christmas Chosen special. But uh, before we get started, I, I just wanted to wish everyone um, a Merry Christmas. We're still in Christmas tide here in the liturgical season, so Merry Christmas to everyone as you continue to celebrate uh, this wonderful season. And um, on the uh, kind of just uh, history side of things, uh, uh, Happy New Year. This is a Christmas Eve special, and so I hope that uh, as you close out 2021, uh, you get to spend it with people that you love and care about, um, and that you will have uh, lots of fun tonight, um, and that you will be safe, and uh, you will have a wonderful uh, 2022, and we're just so grateful that you've decided to spend a little bit of time with us here on the Art House Roadshow um, podcast. Wanted to thank again. I know we posted on Twitter, but we wanted to thank everyone across the milestone um, of getting 100 downloads on Podbean. Uh, I'm still looking for the numbers uh, for what we're doing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But either way, I'm just so happy that you are continuing to show up and, and tune in and, and check us out. And uh, we, we love interacting with you. If there's stuff you'd love to see us cover, please let us know. But just wanted to say thank you again and just... Uh, celebrate the fact that we made that minor uh, milestone i know that that's not a lot in terms of podcasts but uh we at the art house roadshow are really proud of it um anyway uh yeah so this is a, a new year's eve podcast uh happy new year in advance i'll wish you there at the, uh, that again at the end i wanted to explain a little bit about what a MacGuffin is a MacGuffin is kind of this um i the first person i ever heard talk about it was uh alfred hitchcock and uh and he talked about a MacGuffin is basically a device that helps move the plot forward, um, uh, or just something that helps advance stories. So these are just special episodes that kind of help us um, mo- do some things that we want to do, uh, both Kyle and I, either individually or together, um, to uh, help kind of put new content out there. Not everything we're going to do is as deep as we're going to do on the the Art House Roadshow main podcast. Uh, you can see that. Um, Hopefully, every once a month, uh, you know, we put a lot of time and effort into that. Uh, these are just kind of like some smaller things that we want to do that are uh, engaging some topics that we're interested in, some films that we're interested in, um, uh, and some ideas. This isn't quite just a review, so it's not just a sitting down, watching a movie, and reviewing it um, for you, maybe offering a few things, but uh, might be a little bit deeper than that and uh, uh, not as deep as the podcast. So it's kind of in between. Um, in terms of what it's going to offer. Uh, but again, it's something that just helps move the podcast forward because we know that some of you like uh, the insight that we provide, and so we want to add some uh, content for you to enjoy. Um, anyway, uh, that's what this is, and so from now on you'll you'll see a few MacGuffin episodes pop up every now and then, um, and so we will uh, gladly share those with you as soon as they go out. Uh, we're still looking for a more definitive schedule. I know that um, in the month that we have been around, uh, we haven't really posted consistently in the same times. We put a lot of content out. Um, roughly, this will be our sixth um, 
this will be our kind of our sixth uh, bit of content episode of content that we will put out uh, into the world but uh, we're going to try and get a, a more definitive schedule at least for you to expect um what uh, or at least when you can get the main art house roadshow podcast up and running um anyway um i know a few of you have asked if there are ways you can help or support the podcast the biggest thing you can do right now and i would love it if as many of you could do this is if you could leave a review on apple podcasts or podbean or any of the the podcast platforms that you use to listen to the art house roadshow we would love if you could do that that'll help people find us um and help people decide whether or not they want to check us out. So leave a review, um, and that would be great. Uh, that would be really, really helpful for the podcast. Um, more to come as uh, just to look ahead. I want to try and do this every single time since we are so inconsistent about when we put stuff out. Or when I say inconsistent, you know, we don't have a set time like every Sunday afternoon. Uh, the podcasts come out at least once a week, but um, never on the same day, never at the same time. So uh, I always like to try and remind people what's coming up. Um, this is the long-awaited MacGuffin on Midnight Mass, uh, which I know I've gotten a lot of people um, asking about. And so uh, we will happily uh, explore this content here. Um, but we will have another MacGuffin coming out in the next few weeks on the Matrix Resurrections, uh, which will also include kind of a retrospective on the Matrix franchise franchise itself. I think it's a really interesting kind of commentary on uh, the Matrix movies themselves, but also Hollywood. And so we will, we will do a bit of that. Um, and then uh, early in January, we will, and by we, I mean Kyle and I, uh, will engage... Um, the movie or do a, a art house roadshow on the Joker, uh, which is what we put up on our Twitter poll uh, as to what you would like to see us cover next. And I think in February we will cover the movie Hunger. And so hopefully um, you'll tune into those and we will uh, happily get through those um, coming up. I'm, I'm hoping that there's two art house films, uh, more or at least art house kind of films out right now that I'd like to see. Uh, Licorice Pizza is out right now uh, and there's another one called red rocket which is um uh not uh something that i would recommend on the front end of it some of the themes there may not uh jive with um you know your own personal beliefs about things you see but I, I think that there's some interesting themes in there that um can be covered i think and that would be really uh interesting to unpack here on the podcast but at least licorice pizza and maybe red rocket i'd like to uh um, check out and see if we can um uh, delve into a little bit of what's going on there. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, look for those things coming out. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, MacGuffins with a Matrix Resurrections, a podcast episode, episode three over the Joker, come out in January, and then hopefully some movie reviews of Licorice Pizza or Red Rocket and or Red Rocket. And so hopefully those things will, um, will pop up. Uh, before we dive into Midnight Mass... Um, I do want to uh, give a little bit of year-end in review um, and talk a little bit about what movies I'm looking forward to next year. Um, I'm not the connoisseur, and so hopefully uh, Kyle, uh, when we come back together on the uh, main Art House Roadshow podcast, um, will uh, have an opportunity to hear from Kyle on what his favorite um, movies of 2021 were. And uh, maybe we can get uh, a little bit of uh, looking forward to him of like what he's looking to see um, come out this year. 
Um, and by this year, I mean 2022. Um, so I know his are different. I mean, you heard him talking in the podcast last year about Pig, uh, or last time about Pig being probably his favorite movie of the year uh, with Nicolas Cage, um, which is kind of the inverse of a John Wick movie. Uh, and uh, so anyway, um, we already probably know some of his movies that he would choose on his list, but here's mine um, a little bit. Um, before I dive into my top five, because I just I, I did five, um, I, I do want to do some honorable mentions. Um, I really liked In the Heights this year, uh, Lin-Man Mirandual. Uh, he has a really great um, knack for um, music and pulling out themes that I think are really relevant for today. Obviously, he's the creator of Hamilton. This, In the Heights was his first film, or first kind of musical that he did. I think it was really good. Um, I also really enjoyed um, uh, a lot of films that came out that people maybe didn't see. 2021 is hard for me because I didn't get to get to the movie theater as much as I would have liked. Um, with, you know, pandemic still happening, obviously there's just, there wasn't as much of an urge for me to see um, as many movies. Uh, you know, I, I got vaccinated and everything and that was great. Um, and, you know, I want to encourage everyone if you're listening to get vaccinated. Um, but, uh, yeah, getting to the theaters wasn't as high a priority, so I didn't see as many films, and to my shame, the ones that I did see are kind of more of the big-budget kind, but, um, nonetheless, uh, these are some good movies. Um, I, I did like the, uh, the Justice League, um, Snyder Cut that was finally released. Um, uh, thought it was very well done in comparison to, um, uh, the Justice League that was the theatrical release. Um, I also enjoyed Sing 2, which is kind of a very different, uh, a very different vibe uh, from uh, Justice League. Uh, you know, Justice League, dark and gritty, sing to very bright and, and shiny. Um, I loved Cruella. I thought it was a really interesting take on that character. Um, you know, Disney's now doing this thing where they're looking at villains and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt and give you know them a, a fair, you know, honest, not honest maybe, but like... Uh, hospitable reading of trauma that might have led them to where they're at. I think that's uh, a very noble act. Um, and so I really liked Cruella. I thought it was fun. Um, I enjoyed the Jungle Cruise uh, and Godzilla vs. Kong. I'm kind of a sucker for um, those kind of movies. I also really liked Protégé. It was a Michael Keaton um, uh, movie that, I mean, it doesn't star him. Uh, and it stars Maggie Q, actually. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. Um, really interesting stuff. And then Chaos Walking, which, again, was uh, not widely released, I don't think. I, I think that the, the studio, and I've read a couple reports on this, They uh, the first version of the movie, which was supposed to come out maybe like three or four years ago, um, was just incoherent. And so they had to do these massive reshoots. Um, to get it to be coherent, and the final product itself really, um, for a lot of people, really struggled. Um, and the story isn't as coherent as it could be. It stars Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland, and so, like, they were coming off the heels of them being two very hot properties, Daisy Ridley, obviously, in Star Wars, and um, Tom Holland being Spider-Man, and, you know, he's that's still a very hot property to this day. Uh, and so they had some confidence that it would do well, but it, it really didn't, and I think that's just because the pandemic um, really impacted these kind of things like so for example um tenant i think is probably the biggest sacrifice uh to um 
the the pandemic in terms of like how much it could have made at the box office a movie isn't really judged by how much it's made but it is whether or not a a studio will continue with the idea chaos walking was a young adult kind of um novel series and so um there's a lot more story to be told um but nonetheless i think it was a really interesting story it makes my honorable mentions uh, just because this top five I, I really can't knock anything off of it uh, but it tells a really interesting story about um, masculinity um, and what it means to be masculinity, uh, to be a man, sorry, uh, and what is masculine features and things like that. And so it, it's important to kind of watch this movie and think through those, those different types of um, themes. Um, speaking of masculinity, Fast 9 came out. Really interesting stuff. I, I am, uh, like I said, I'm at the McDonald's drive through of, of movie connoisseurs, but... Uh, and if Kyle heard me say that I liked Fast and Furious 9, he probably would uh, stop being my co-host. So it's a secret between you and me. Let's not share it with anyone, shall we? Um, so anyway, let's go to my top five uh, of the year. Um, number five, Nobody. I thought it was a really interesting kind of take on um, the kind of revenge flick uh, element. It's, it's a character you don't normally see. Um, as in that kind of action role. Uh, it was a comedy, too. Um, and I think that the com comedic element really helped, um, like make this, uh, um, make this what it was. It started Bob Odenkirk, who you would know from Better Call Saul, um, and, uh, also, you know, for a time in, um, Breaking Bad. And so it's just a really interesting breakout role for him in terms of becoming more of an action star and that kind of thing. I don't think he'll return to the genre, but, um, hopefully they'll do another, um, movie because I, I really enjoyed this kind of like silly funny kind of but also revenge flick i think also uh, one of the pieces that's really clear and i mean really helpful at the beginning um of the movie when he first kind of gets back into the role the the, the whole story the gist of the story if you haven't seen it is that bob odenkirk plays this kind of like um suburban dad who um works at a company for his father-in-law and you know, just you know, everyone kind of picks on, but um, come to find out he's actually like a John Wick kind of guy from in a previous life. And finally, he kind of wakes up from that uh, suburban kind of dream whenever um, one day, like somebody breaks into his house and uh, and he thinks steals his daughter's kitty cast bracelet and robs him. And, you know, he gets a lot of people that are telling him, you know, you need to toughen up, be a man, that kind of thing. And, and he has this scene where he's on a bus and there's these guys that come on the bus and they... Uh, um, and they start acting like they're going to attack this young woman and he kind of violently takes them all out. And it's, it's a really hard scene to watch because it's just, it's tough and you can tell that he hasn't done it in a while. And so, you know, violence is not something that we can just pick up automatically again. So like with John Wick, he's able to just kind of slide right back into it, even though he's been out of the game for a while. Uh, nonetheless, uh, for, uh, Bob Odenkirk, they show that it's a little bit of a struggle, which is a theme I really enjoy in the movie Unforgiven, um, starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, Clint Eastwood's character really struggles getting back into the murder for hire business, and uh, it's a it's a great movie. I think you should check it out. Uh, anyway, so that's number five for me. Nobody. Number four, Tomorrow War. I thought it was a really interesting um, science fiction movie. It's uh, something that's never really been done before. I love Chris Pratt. Um, such a great film, and it's basically a story about a guy um, who lives, like, uh, well, the world who is invaded by, uh, humans from the future who say that they're a part of this, this war with this alien species, and they're losing, and, um, they need soldiers to help fight the war, and so people from the past are sending people to the future, 
in order to um, fight this war. And so Chris uh, Pratt is one of those people. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting film is an Amazon release. Didn't really get in theaters again. 2021 was wild in terms of its, uh, <laughs> in terms of its, um, uh, movie releases. I mean, a lot of the, you know, if you look at a lot of the ones like justice league, Kong in the Heights, uh, uh, some of the ones I mentioned and others as well. Um, they, uh, they really, um, they being HBO max, um, and Warner brothers really, really kind of took the that on the chin in terms of the losses they sustained um i think in the third quarter i read that hbo max lost like close to two million subscriptions or subscribers um and the whole like bet that um hbo max and warner brothers were doing was that if they released all of their content on streaming they would get a ton of subscribers and that would make up for the losses that they would sustain with a theatrical release so you could go see like dune for example which is another great movie um which should make my honorable mentions as well because uh, i did a, a MacGuffin on it but nonetheless um yeah they lost a lot of money on that and they weren't making the kind of money that they should be in the theaters as well because a lot of people were just choosing to stay at home and stream very interesting stuff but um yeah, so Tomorrow War was an Amazon film. Uh, third is Free Guy. Ryan Reynolds, just hilarious in that movie. Um, it's a really great commentary on video games and video game tropes, um, which I think are fascinating. Really interesting uh, cast. Uh, and, uh, like, a fascinating approach to thinking about, like, what is it that makes us human, right? And that kind of element, too. So I think it's, again, great commentary on video games, great commentary on what makes us human. Um Second, Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi, um, I always forget how to pronounce it, um, and I apologize for that, um, uh, but it's a really great movie, um, I was interested to see what the MCU was gonna do after Endgame, they obviously did Far From Home, and then the pandemic hit, and they really, um, have been releasing a lot of TV, uh, which is great this year, um, you know, it's interesting, like, we, we've had, let's see, we've had one, two, three, four, five, we've five, um, Disney Plus streamed MCU television series, but and we've had now we've had four movies this year. Um, so we had a lot of content this year, and there's going to be this huge gap because we don't get anything MCU wise until May um, with the Multiverse of Madness, and so we don't even know when the next um, Disney Plus streaming show is actually going to be showing. So. Um, anyway, I, I was interested to see how they picked up. I was really fascinated by this movie, by this idea. I've never really um, known anything about Shang-Chi as the character, but I thought killed it. I thought it did great. Um, Aquafina is always hilarious gas. And also just a different role for her. Uh, and I thought she did really, really great. Um, and uh, number one, of course, is Spider-Man. Um, I, I was going to put kind of Black Widow. Uh, where did Black Widow and the Eternals fit? I thought Black Widow is great. Um it's in my honorable mentions, probably. I didn't want to just say the top five was, like, all Marvel movies. Um, I love Black Widow. It was great. I like The Eternals, too. I don't think it should have gotten as bad of a rap as it did. I thought the story was interesting. I liked the characters. I just don't know anything about The Eternals. And so, um, I didn't really, um, engage it as much. But, um, the, it, it sounds like the, the reception of The Eternals is kind of, uh, sealed its own fate and so i'm not sure they're going to do anything with those characters before it's kind of one of the first failures that the uh mcu has ever had and so um it'll be interesting to see what if they use those characters going forward which i don't think they they will 
Sorry, that's my year in review. Uh, Nobody, Tomorrow War, Free Guy, Shang-Chi, and Spider-Man. Really interesting stuff. If you want to hear my thoughts on Spider-Man, there are two podcasts up on it, so we don't need to cover that anymore. Uh, all right, so let's dive into uh, Midnight Mass, shall we? Um, this is a show on Netflix. Uh, you can stream all of it right now if you want. Uh, comes from director Mike Flanagan, and uh, if that name sounds familiar, it should. Um, he has done two other Netflix series, uh, one, The Haunting of Blind Manor, and the other is The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which is, uh, both are fantastic horror movies, uh, horror uh shows that is um i went to this actually this past year um in 2021 i went to the uh halloween horror nights at um universal studios and um there was a uh a haunting at hill house uh scare maze and it was uh, really 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 good really interesting so i really like that property um and there's a lot of uh uh, a lot of shows right now, a lot of movies, a lot of properties out there right now who do kind of this work with horror movies that I think is just kind of a reclamation of what it was supposed to be um, back when the first horror movies were made. I mean, you look at Hitchcock, for example, like he's trying to do something with his horror movies, not just kind of cheap thrills and things like that. And same for, you know, even older ones like, you know, old monster movies like... Um, Frankenstein, werewolf, and stuff like that. They were exploring richer themes than just, you know, being scary. You know, the many of the movies that we kind of see as horror movies uh, in the modern era are just kind of cheap thrills, jump scares, that kind of thing. There's really no message being, um, or like, up front trying to be communicated. Um, but there's a lot of properties right now, like Jordan Peele, for example. Uh, Mike Flanagan is another one. Um, and there's a few others that really use the horror model. As a, as a way to explore these richer themes, and I think that's exactly what Mike Flanagan does. Um, Midnight Mass, though, is kind of his intentional veer into a religious conversation. Um, and for those of you who know on the podcast and, and follow our social media, we've kind of been asking you what you would like to see us do, the deep dives or the longer kind of plot summaries and engagement with themes, or, or if you'd like to see us keep it short. Um, I'm going to save that longer kind of deep dive into the plot for the main show and if i did that you know it's a show it's not a movie and so you can be less you have to be less succinct about it uh, if you did that i can't go through every episode and tell you everything that happens in there but um, i would encourage you to go watch it um even though there will be spoilers in this review this is not a spoiler uh spoiler free review and so anyway um that's that's something that i think is um is, is uh, something that I'll, I'll, we'll just keep on the main podcast. And here I'll just do a brief overview of the plot and then get into some of the themes I really appreciate about it. But anyway, um, it centers around this this town, this island town called Crockett Island. And so it's it's kind of like um, what I would guess would be like a fishing town, right? Fishing island kind of out uh, away from the mainland uh, quite a bit. Um, and predominantly, mostly deals with or has people who are fishers, fishermen. Um, like a few, maybe a couple dozen people live there. Um, and there it's, you know, it's not really in a very affluent area. They have a mayor and a, you know, a sheriff and all that kind of good stuff. But, um, they, uh, it's, it's very small. Like the sheriff's office is in the back of a grocery store and so is the jail. You know, they got one jail cell. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's small. It's small. Think very small. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's a place where people live if they have nowhere else to go and they want to be a fisherman or something like that. That's their skill. 
Uh, the island is called Crockett Island. It's very disconnected. The only way back to the mainland is a ferry that comes twice a day um, or three times a day. I think it may be 8, 12, and 4 it comes. And so, like, if you were going to commute to the mainland, you've got to be real intentional about getting back. Um, and so it's very cut off, very isolated. Um, and through a kind of strange circum uh, set of events... Um, it falls prey to a vampire and a vampire-like influence. Now, the, the story revolves primarily, and, I, and I've heard some conflicting narratives about this. It's, it's, it's really mo mostly around two people, especially um, uh, the first half of the film. Uh, Riley, um, who is kind of a, you see at the beginning of the film, or the, sorry, the series uh, is involved in some kind of drunk act, drunk driving incident where he ends up killing an, a young woman and is sent to prison. Um, he's a very religious person and actually in prison um, deconverts from Christianity. Um, and another is a Father uh, Pruitt, um, who is first presented to us as Father Paul. Father Paul Pruitt um, is somebody who... Um, goes he's an elderly kind of priest of this tiny town there's one church in this town a catholic church um and he goes on this kind of retreat to the holy land uh gets lost um you come to find out he probably has dementia it isn't well and but so he gets lost uh, you know out in the hills of the holy land and kind of stumbles into a cave in the middle of the day and is attacked by a vampire um but the vampire kind of feeds him his blood and it kind of transforms this uh, older man into this younger man and he returns to Crockett Island um, first under the um, pseudonym of Father Paul uh, because people there would not recognize him being that young and you know he didn't want to, have to explain himself right away um, and so he, he presents himself as somebody very different and so Father Pruitt um, ends up like uh, taking the blood of this uh, vampire um, whom he recognizes as an angel um, and mixes it with the host every week. Now, it's so interesting because not many, like, shows like this will really engage the sacramental nature of it, and I think this show actually does a pretty interesting job, a pretty good job of, like, exploring the sacramental nature of the church. And so um, Father Pruitt mixes the blood of the vampire with the host um, for communion. So the people of the town are actually ingesting this... Um, meal uh the sacramental meal uh with mixed with the blood of this angel or vampire as he is he is known as um and so this has drastic effects on the whole town uh everyone starts getting younger actually it's really funny because in the show like um <laughs> i i know like i know a lot of these actors are actually younger um and they made them look quite old and like you can tell when an, a younger actor is made to look old um, and so throughout the show, like they eventually start to, um, look younger, right? And the, the point that this is trying to signal is that the, the, uh, blood actually, like with Father Paul, um, makes and transforms the individual to be younger, uh, than they are. It's to be your prime self, I think is even what it says, uh, what, uh, Father Paul says at one point. Um, and this influence starts to take over this town. And, and part of it is, is the miracles that are happening. Uh, the miracles that are happening as a result of this. Uh, one of the key uh, moments in this series is when uh, the daughter of the mayor, who's actually paralyzed, there was an accident years ago um, 
where a man on the island got drunk and shot uh accidentally shot a young girl in her and hit her spine and so it caused her to be paralyzed and so there's this point in the show where um this girl having consumed enough of the eucharist actually can walk and so it's this miracle it's a really interesting kind of miracle that takes place and you know i'll talk a little bit about what i think of that a little bit later on and it's a fascinating piece but anyway through this kind of these signs and wonders there's this uh taking over the town and father paul it's actually interesting as the more he takes of it and the more the town takes of it they can't go outside during the day because you know one of the great mythos of vampires is that you know they are unable to expose their skin to sunlight so fascinating stuff here um but still this uh this interesting part the one character that i find fascinating um is bev keen um and she's this really uh kind of like zealous um i mean i would go as far as to say as kind of extremist form of of christianity um we'll talk a little bit more about how she uses that but she's kind of this very bullying like hard figure who um does a lot of things that are really immoral and she kind of ends up masking her faults by the religious kind of authority that she has she's kind of like the number two person at the church um she helps father pruitt kind of like take his mission out farther maybe farther than father pruitt wanted to or faster than he wanted to but she is somebody who very much takes charge and 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 you know forms this new community of faith um as this kind of like really um dangerous form of, of christianity that's emerging and she's she's a fascinating character it's in fact in one of the main stories is of the show is, is father Pruitt kind of diminishing in his spiritual roles. He's starting to question what he's doing and Bev becoming more confident and kind of like leading the people, um, uh, in this kind of almost like really, um, violent form of the faith. Um, and we'll get to kind of the main scene kind of at the end with, where this, um, takes place, but, um, largely, um, there is this, um, part uh of the movie or so i keep saying movie i mean series <laughs> um where the town is just succumbing to this kind of fear and there's there's a, a lot of other elements too like so the sheriff of that town is actually a um uh a person of islamic faith and he he moved there to kind of get away from the racism of of uh the counter-terrorist unit that he was a part of in new york um and this kind of darkness starts to fall over the town, which helps because they start to shoot the show exclusively at night. And so it really plays into the mentality that they're trying to perform there. Um, but um, the interesting thing that's really interesting, uh, the interesting thing that's really interesting, it's a fascinating statement. You can tell that I have a, a PhD, but anyway, um, the, the portion of this film, uh, this, this uh, series um, as it kind of winds down towards its conclusion um, is the way that um, is the way that uh, this town finally uh, moves towards a conclusion so there's this there's this really interesting scene at the very end it's near the like in the last couple episodes where the vampire actually shows up in the town dressed as a priest um, during one of the religious ceremonies and you know the point is is that he starts to transform people into um 
like actually more vampires, right? The um, the main priest, Pot Father Pruitt, um, himself uh, is himself kind of like already a vampire. So like Bev can go out into the light and and do things for Father Pruitt on his behalf until she herself has undergoes the transformation. But he's the only one for the longest time. The second person is Riley, actually, who um, Father Paul actually starts an AA meeting for. Um, and so it's fascinating to kind of see um, the conversations that happen between Riley, a non-Christian, and Father Paul Pruitt, a uh, you know a priest who has undergone this like radical transformation according to the vampire. And I think this is um, helpful. But one day, just basically, um, Riley comes in too early for AA, vampire sees him, bites him, and actually turns him into a vampire. Um, and there's this really poignant death scene, which we'll talk about at the end where he sacrifices himself to help help show one of the other character, Aaron, what exactly is going on so that she can get out. He wants her to leave, um, but she doesn't. She stays and helps, um, the people. Um, and so, um, the climax of the show is when they have the, a midnight mass one day and the, um, angel comes in, the vampire that is comes in dressed as a cleric and actually starts to feed everyone the blood. And so you know, now Father Prude isn't the only one who is a vampire. It's all these other people, too. Um, and most people end up doing, um, like, because, you know, they're given a choice in a certain sense. Like, they're given a choice to uh, either drink it or not drink it because of the miracles that are happening all around them. Like, they, they're afraid not to. Like, you know, the parents, for example, the girl who was... Um, paralyzed now having like being kind of the most starch like stark supporters of this right um because they're afraid that the miracle will go away right they'll they're afraid that the good things will stop happening all these signs and wonders and things like that they really gravitate towards they being the people of the town and so it's it's really interesting to kind of see um how that theme goes along and so in the final like that climax of the film you know he comes in there uh he being the vampire angel figure and he you know, gives out all these different vials of his blood and people drink it because uh, before the, the blood has been diluted with um, the sacramental host and things like that. This is kind of like straight vampire blood and that kind of thing. Um, and they kind of, uh, the, the what Father Pruitt wants to do is to kind of keep them locked in the church um, to where they can learn to control their hunger, right? Because they crave blood just like any good vampire. But he gets shot, um, and uh, by actually a character who's really close to um, uh, Father Pruitt. Uh, one of the things, for example, he does when he first comes back and he's still going by Father Paul, is that he um, visits this elderly woman um, whose daughter is kind of like the town doctor, for lack of a better term, and she, um, um, her mom is uh like elderly with very bad dementia or um or alzheimer's i'm forgetting which one is but something that's impacting her memory and ability to kind of work and he visits her he gives her the host every day and she slowly starts to get better right come to find out father pruitt and um, her had a had a fling and they actually produced a daughter who's the daughter who's the doctor right um and, and he she never really knew that that was her father um but anyway so she, he visited her uh and kind of helped her get better she's the one who ends up you know shooting him um 
in the final scene and so the vampire actually attacks her and knocks the doors open and bev who's now kind of like the de facto person in charge sends all the new vampires out to the village and they start biting and drinking people's blood and slowly but surely the entire town becomes uh, vampires with the exception of two kids um, one of which being the girl who was formerly paralyzed and so um basically the the people who are fighting against the the kind of take over the town end up kind of sabotaging all ways to get off the island um they send the two kids out to sea so that they're protected um and they uh when the sun comes up they all burn to death right because they're all vampires now and so there's they they die when exposed to the sun um they even in fact there's a scene where woman aaron you know the one whom riley uh, goes out to sea to kind of show her exactly um what's going on so she'll believe it she has nowhere to go he has nowhere to go he, she, he sees her, she sees him die. And so that's when she knows that something's going on and goes back to the town to warn people. And that's when the group starts to come together to fight against what's happening. And so that same group is the one that sabotages it. And one of the things that Aaron does, who's the person that, you know, told everyone, is she um, lures, or I guess, uh, the vampire into, uh, you know, kind of biting her, drinking her blood, that kind of thing. Because she didn't drink the blood back at the, um, back at the church. Um, and while he's doing that, she actually, like, cuts you know, slashes on his wings, you know, because the vampire is so interested in drinking her blood and so, you know, focused on that that he doesn't really care that she's kind of cutting holes in his wings and um, even he kind of gets blown up at the end. And we know that not because we see him get lit on fire, but because the miracle of her, of the girl who was uh, paralyzed uh, goes away, uh, who can now walk. She's, her, her legs, she can no longer feel again. So her miracle is tied to the existence of this, um vampire again very poignant here which we'll talk about kind of some of the themes that emerge from thinking through and thinking with this uh series um but everyone in the town disappears there's this really great scene where the uh bev is kind of at the town and she's just she's frantic and she's trying to bury herself because she's so afraid of dying there's all these people in the center of the town who are singing hymns um accepting their fate realizing what they've done and truly repenting of it and and the way that i think that i see that most heavily is just this this real remorse on all of their faces and the fact that they are seeing this hymn uh and then obviously the um uh the two um the the the, the, the father son who themselves are islamic um pray um in their tradition at the end of the town they're actually right next to bev and she's franticking and i frantically um kind of trying to bury herself and i think that you know mike does that as a as a real um like uh, trying to just suppose two different forms of faith not two different faith traditions <clears throat> but two different forms of faith and so um yeah it ends with this note of actually the girl saying i can i can't feel my legs and she's happy things like that because i think her and her um compadre on the uh, raft with her are actually they know that means that the vampire is dead and uh but that, that also it's very sad because they see the ashes kind of falling um that means that their families are also dead as well um so it's a, it's a real kind of somber movie but there's a lot of rich theological things for reflection um here which i'll kind of dive into a little bit you know I, so i gave you enough the spoilers so you know what happens but i would highly recommend watching this show um, because there's, I think, uh, some really good intellectual work to be done here. And I do want to at least say that, too, that, like, you know, obviously, 
there are things like uh, it's very it's gory because it involves a vampire um you know there's a um the language isn't um i think as hospitable as you would like for a christian community uh, but nonetheless um and apologize as I, I pour myself a, a drink here of diet coke um if you know me you know i love diet coke so i'm uh, grabbing one real quick um but nonetheless um the uh um anyway so the, the, it's not like this is just very sanitized in a lot of ways so the theological themes kind of are embedded within that and so if that's something that you really don't enjoy or or you know or maybe enjoy is the wrong word um really don't want to engage in either the gore the language that things you know feel free to skip this one and just uh um maybe listen to this uh macguffin and uh just be satisfied with that, but if this is something that intrigues you that you'd like to get some more details on, I've intentionally left some stuff out. There's a faith science element in it um, that I think that's very helpful, but you know, there's some themes here that I want to cover. So I would highly recommend it if, if, if you can um, uh, watch it, but if not, totally understandable, just check this out and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, but it, it kind of recaptures, like I said at the beginning, this idea of horror movies as a social commentary. Um, racism, uh, shame, um, all different kinds of things were the original, um, uh, engagement with, um, horror genres back in the day. Like, how do we, how do we talk about shame? How do we talk about guilt? So, you know, something like, for example, um, uh, Get Out, right? Which is a recent horror movie that explores the idea of racism. Very profound, yet very scary. <laughs> and again, this is really good um, horror genre done right, and, you know, this is, I mean, it's also carried on in things like, um, the, uh, Candyman, um, and, you know, even to some extent, you know, I, I could, I see us also doing that as well, and so there's a lot of really great things that horror can do, and this really recovers that, like, a, a, a think piece on how we understand ourselves to be human, that's exactly what this is supposed to do, um, but there's a lot of things here that I think are really poignant that I've heard, um, not only just uh, from other podcasts that reflect on it. I mean, this was all over Twitter. I've seen so many people post about this, so many um, podcasts about it that I, I kind of want to put my own out there. And you know, you'll kind of hear some of the same themes from that, but also some perspectives of my own. Um, there's this real emphasis on community. Um, and one of the things that I've been listening to also as a podcast has been uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, and, you know, there's a whole other thing to be done in judging whether or not that podcast does justice to what happens at Mars Hill. Do they really get into what the root causes are? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, for just for time's sake, that, document, that podcast um, series is really, really good. Um, and in one specific way, it, it shows just what a community, once it turns toxic and, um, and, and, and it's turned towards death, what it can actually do. And so it's really interesting to kind of compare that to what happens in this, in this film. Obviously, you know, there's no vampires, at least that we know, that are involved with, uh, Mars Hill, but nonetheless, um both have to ask a similar question what do we do after this community kind of implodes like mars hill implodes it implodes and it leaves a lot of um hurt and um trauma in its wake now granted it did that when it was also very profitable and very much open but nonetheless it 
hurt a lot of people and it's closing nonetheless and same way these two kids at this raft kind of leaving this community leaving behind the religious traditions you know in a, in a really poignant way of their community uh what do we do in the wake of destruction so the you know the girl um is he, no longer healed and so um she has to leave the miracle kind of behind as well in order to escape that trauma and you know there's a there's a helpful piece here about like uh, one of the elements i hear in the mars hill documentary a lot it's like well, why did you stay it's like well i experienced community i experienced um salvation i experienced all these things you know but it just turned so bad i finally had to leave you know and for the people who stayed as long as they did they still saw something good in that community and it was hard for them to leave because of all the good things that were happening. This is kind of the signal of what's going on here with this um, young woman who is leaving behind the fact that she can she can walk and now is paralyzed again by having to leave that behind. But there's kind of some hopefulness about it. I think that's what the director wants to clue, clue us in. And so, um, yeah, but there's also this idea of like, what does it mean to be an atheist? What does it mean to be a believer? And... It's interesting because I've heard a lot of people say that this is an indictment of all Christianity and only the people who are not Christian were the good people in this uh, this documentary. Uh, or documentary. <laughs> if this is a documentary, that is terrifying. Because uh, that means vampires are real, and that's that's really scary. Um, but in this series, that's one of the things that people say. is like, okay, well, this is all the people, like, for example, Riley, who's self-sacrificial. Um he's the one who is the true morally upright person and not all the people are Christian or not. And I don't think that's a really fair uh, justification. I've also heard others say that, you know, actually religion doesn't really um, make you a better person or make you a worse person. You're either good or bad and religion just enhances those qualities. I don't think that's true either. I think um, Christianity and this idea of conversion can make oneself better. Um, and the gospel has impact on people's lives. I don't think that it's fair enough to say, it's fair to say, um, that religion really has no impact and you're just a good or bad person and the religious elements kind of just um, uh, enhance whatever qualities you have. So yeah, it's, I, it's, I don't know, it's, it's neither here nor there uh, with that. Um, and so I, I don't really buy that. What I see though in this kind of juxtaposition of atheism and, and, and religiosity is this idea that I see in the early church. Um, and so for example, um, there's this really great book called Larry, by Larry Hurtado, called Destroyer of the Gods, which I make all my students read in uh, one of the classes I teach on church history. Um, because the main thrust of that book is that um, the early church changed fundamentally the way that religious practice was engaged in in the early, um, you know, antiquity, right? It's, it's a different form of faith that would radically change what it is we understand religious practice to be globally. And that's something that really cannot be... Um, overstated it's it's something that's really really powerful to think about um that christianity does that and one of the points that he makes is that um the author is that basically the early christians were atheists to the religious practices deities and uh you know conventions of their day and so um the risk of this of this i think this series is that the people who themselves reject the kind of vampire-influenced theology of the church that they're in, themselves have to be betrayed as atheists because they reject the claims, the truth claims, that are inherent in the claims of the religion that's being practiced, right? Uh, you know, and all that means is that um, they have to uh, practice the faith in a way that is completely unrecognizable 
um, to the convictions of what it is. And so, for example, um, the the point that uh, the pastor talks about, or the priest, Father Pruitt, talks about several times, is this idea of wanting to live forever and to be this um, beautiful, healed version of yourself. Um, Riley himself will reject that and actually prefer to die, uh, to be burned alive um, at the sun. Um, right, this kind of this false eternal e eternality that is being offered to them, right? This one that is tied not to God, but to this vampire, to this death dealing, this life-sucking force. Um, only by becoming eternal to that um, will you live forever, is, is what Father Pruitt is, is encouraging people to do. But he rejects that fundamentally uh, and, and looks like he's rejecting the gift of salvation at that point. But it's not salvation. It is a false salvation clothed in the language of Christianity. Quite literally in that last scene where the angel comes in in this garb of religiosity. But it is not, you know, it is not. Uh, and so he rejects that and he is portrayed as an atheist for it, right? He does not believe. But in fact, he does believe. Um, he just doesn't, he believes a different gospel. Like, you know, and that's the, the point. Um, and again, I want to overemphasize this. He is an atheist in what the traditional sense of that word is in our popular culture is. He doesn't believe in any kind of deity. I'm not saying that that's what we have to do. I'm saying that the literary kind of um, moral that this is showing is that oftentimes the thing that is clothed in religious language and purports itself to be theological or the faith itself has to be held in deep suspicion because... Um, it is clothed actually underneath once you get beyond the religious element into the core of what it's trying to do is actually anti-christ right that angel is anti-christ and so that's very important um to to reflect on out of this film you know because it's it's uh riley's character is kind of contrasted with this character bev who i talked about before fascinating character this actress apparently is also just like the opposite of how she portrays her character She's like the kindest, sweetest person ever, but she's just such a good actor that she's able to kind of like uh, perform this, like just you hate her, right? So I think about, about the person who like plays like Dolores Umbridge, right? For example, she's she really makes you hate that character. Bev does that here too. Um, and she's, again, the, the she's very much the opposite. Her entire um, life, for lack of a better term, is... Um, uh, really shown, like, slowly but surely how bad of a person she is. Like, she very, like, so, for example, she, um, uh, like, early on, like, she's, uh, like, it's very clear that she, like, poisons a dog, right? Uh, she's, you know, has some very subtly, not so subtly racist things to say um, towards uh, Sheriff Hassan, who's in, who's in town, right? And he's Islamic, right? Um, and, uh, it's just, anyway, it's just, it's really fascinating to see. Because one of the points that you see in her, um, her, and it just comes out so well, is that she masks all of her moral failings in religious garb. And again, it just not to belabor this point, but it brings me back to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, right? Because right there <laughs> is a um, real display of a person, Mark Driscoll, masking all of his moral failures, his meanness, his cruelty, his quick-temperedness, his um, 
pettiness as religious, right? He, he instead um, portrays them as strengths. And so you mask whatever he does and justifies the things that he does. And it's the same for Bev. In light of these like theological themes or these like passages of the scripture, right? She, she kind of throws various scriptures to kind of justify exactly what she's doing and all these, like, so for example, there's this really interesting part, part where Father Pruitt murders one of the other attendees of, uh, um, of, uh, AA, right? And so Bev helps him dispose of the body and she gets the groundkeeper of the church to do it for her. And she throws all these Bible verses at him, which have nothing to do with exactly what she's trying to get him to do. Um, but again, this kind of ease at which we mask our own moral failings in under the guise of the gospel is, is very clear in Bev. Um, and, and for her, like, you know, like there's this great scene at the end where one of the women who helps kind of work against what they're doing, um, says to her she's like bev you know you can't stand the fact that you know that god loves everyone as much as god loves you right and there's a lot in that right the kind of the desire that we want to be worthy of god so we have to make ourselves appear perfect to god and god just god loves us right as a free gift but also the fact that we just feel like we are better than other people oftentimes in religious circles um even in christian circles for that matter that we oftentimes neglect the fact that um, that basic conviction is true. But, you know, the, the kind of the two sides of the same coin about, like, we mask our moral failings as, in light of theological claims. There's also, and this is one of the more terrifying, I think, elements of the piece, and again, horror films, here it is, is the willingness of these kind of, this evil entity to take on the religious garb. And I'm not the only one who said this. This is not an original idea to myself. Um... Right, so um, they, they, I've heard countless people refer to this, but this idea of um, this angel. And again, one of the things that's really perverse is that people look at that vampire, who's very clearly a vampire. Like, I don't know if in this world there are no vampires, like, at all. Um, uh, I mean, obviously they refer to it as a vampire at some point, but how could you look at that and think, okay, that's an angel. Um, and so, uh, he, he, the, but the willingness of that vampire to take on the religious ceremonies, right? And in some sense, like, again, the the re religious ceremonies are kind of the veneer, and then the depth, kind of the core, is kind of the replacing the core of Christianity with um, the core of what they're offering. And now, granted, they picked the perfect host because there's so much about vampires that, you know, maps on uh, to Christian theology, especially the gospel, like, like this idea um, that... Uh, um, it's centered around blood, things like that, um, and the kind of the partaking of blood, that kind of thing. That's a very uh, Christian ideal with the you know the sacraments and things like that. Um, but this kind of the and I'll just say it as clearly as I can: the willingness of evil to adopt our religious ceremonies in order to um, gain our assent, right? Um, and the fact that we barely recognize it because they they do the bare minimum of adopting the religious ceremony and so we're willing to go along with it uh, and a lot of times this is self-imposed like the fact that christians oftentimes don't even recognize the core of what the gospel is anymore um you know results in the fact that they misunderstand and don't see 
um, when this happens, because this happens all the time. You know, political power, for example, in our own time, has been that force that has kind of adopted the religious veneer in order to mobilize us against one another um, and against, you know, enemies and so sort. Uh, but they replace the core of the gospel with their own convictions about the way the world should be. Um, how we get eternal life, how we are faithful, all of these different things are reinscribed in light of the core that they offer us um, in this way. Um, sorry also for if you're hearing an audio of me like sniffing my nose or scratching my nose or coughing or clearing my throat. I'm, I'm very sick from the holidays. And so um, anyway, um, not feeling my best. So I apologize for that in advance, but um, I didn't want to get this podcast out to you. Um, Anyway, so, yeah, this is such, such a, a poignant theme to think about. It's so clear. Um, because vampire theology is not just a new kind of thing. Like, vampire theology is a part of um, a lot of theological work that's been happening. And basically, vampire theology refers to a kind of theological emphasis that um, finds its resonance in this kind of death, life-sucking kind of entity that actually kills and maims and destroys the 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 theology that leads to things like um slavery the theology that leads itself to things like genocide right that is a vampire theology uh colonialism all this stuff vampire theology and so really interesting stuff now this leads to another kind of theme that is kind of woven throughout the film especially the front maybe two-thirds of the of the uh of the series um is uh, this idea of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Um, one of the things that's really interesting, like I said, the conversations between Riley and Father um, Father Pruitt are really interesting because Father Pruitt talks about how, and again, one of the things I really like about this film is that there's a lot of really solid engagement with theology. You hear a lot of the sermons. You hear a lot of theological conversations. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the sacraments. I mean, there's a ton of really great stuff there that is discussed. Um, but, uh, none more poignant than this scene where he talks about how, um, alcohol, right, is not bad in and of itself, but it, it actually, um, is the way that one uses it. I thought that's really interesting because I think that the point that, um, uh, that he's trying to make here is again, that point where he says really, he's because he's making a larger point about religion, right? There are people who, you know, are fanatics, religious fanaticism, right, who can use religion as a means to gain power, right, or can use it to destroy, kill, and maim, and, you know, do all those kind of really violent things. Um, there is that use of religion, but there's also the religion that you see in a lot of the characters um, that I think um, really presents a positive thing, right? So Aaron, one of these characters... I think has a really positive faith that you see and you know people say that she deconverts throughout the film i'm not sure if that's necessarily true um i think what she does is she recognizes the um yet again she recognizes the vampire theology in it and so she is becoming an atheist to that portion of christianity as she's developing a true faith in jesus christ um not in that um vampire right that is the point of Christian faith, to have faith in God and not in that vampire. And she's trying to decouple those things. And so it looks like a deconversion, but in fact, it is not. And so 
um, yeah, um, the I, I see a good faith in her. And so one of the things is that is, is important is that, um, and I want to push back against is like that assumes obviously that we are just good or bad people, no matter what, and religion just enhances that. And it really doesn't make any kind of room for transformation. And if that's your the dichotomy, then Aaron does look like she moves from one pole to the other. But if you can say that religion has this ability to, and especially Christianity has this ability to transform, right, the heart and mind, um, then it's not a moving from one pole to another. It, it is a kind of um, kind of chafening or like a casting away kind of the, the elements of the faith or the elements of the um, and when I say the elements of the faith, I mean the elements of the vampire faith. But to carve away those um, those those bad things, right? Like the vampire theology. And so um, she's being transformed by the renewing of her mind and becoming more of a Christ follower through that process. She's not just on one side or the other, right? Um, she's being transformed. She's somewhere in the middle. She has a faith, but she's not willing to buy the way that the faith is being explained to her by the vampire right she's just not willing to accept that and so there's a transformation i'm not sure that is fully accounted for there um and so this kind of this 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 kind of like comparison with an alcoholics anonymous about alcohol and all that kind of stuff um only being bad in the hands that it has like religious and, and god right has this ability to transform the heart and mind and move a person into um a truer state of being right um, and makes bad people good, right? But, I mean, the, the truth of it is, is that if it depends on, it, and to some extent, this is where I do want to, like, the pushback is obviously in that direction, but there's some element that you have to kind of give weight to, in the sense that, like, with Bev, like, she completely uses the faith to mask her own moral failings. Um, in some sense, Aaron is using the faith to see the wrongs she has committed, um, and then also kind of um, move in a different direction. Um, but Bev only uses it to further justify her own self. This is a theological theme, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in terms of costly grace. Costly grace is that which justifies the sinner. Cheap grace, which is its opposite, the not good version, is that which justifies the sin. Which is basically means that it's the difference between saying, I know I've done wrong, and I require forgiveness, penance, justification, uh, so that I might live better, instead of saying that, oh, well, this is why I did that, and that's why it's okay, right? We want to justify the sinner, not the sin. That's the point that Bonhoeffer is making. And so the, the way that this holds weight, though, this kind of critique, is that there are those who use Christianity to cover and justify their own sins, you see that here with Bev. And so the kind of the larger piece is that this is this is true because it's not just um, Bev's moral failings is the only kind of experience of um, a justification that's happening, but fear is another one. So, for example, the mayor, right, he is afraid. Um, and he's one of the people that ends up siding with Bev and all those creatures, uh, all the uh, vampires, that is, Um against the town because and and i think that you can completely understand why his daughter uh can walk again there's this miracle that's happened and he's afraid of losing it 
Um, Bev herself is afraid of dying, so she wants to live forever. Right? There's all this stuff <laughs> that's out there in the open. And because of our fears, because of our anxieties, um, and our desire to want to um, control the uncertainties of life, we will completely throw out the core of the gospel and justify this adoption of this evil image to try and control the contingencies that lead to our fears, right? It's really powerful because what you see in all the characters is their own kind of justifications of taking this blood, right? It's tied to their fears. They don't want to die. They don't want to lose, right? The ability to walk, all that kind of stuff. The, the girl actually doesn't. That's why she's able to survive at the end. Um, she's not afraid. She's able to kind of give that up. But um, the, uh, the, you know, the mayor, for example, because of his fears, he, he takes the sacrament as what it's called. Um, or he willingly joins this um, coalition of the vampire. And so uh, you see that what he does is he reaches back. It's like, well, I mean, this has actually been a part of Christianity all along. Here's this Bible verse. Bev does that throughout the entire film, right? Justifying everything from the murder of a dog to the covering up of a murder of a parishioner, right? Um, this has just been a part of our tradition all along. And so willing to bend the Christian story around the narrative that you would like to tell, around the fears uh, that you have, so as to latch yourself on, to justify, or at least give yourself permission to decouple from the gospel onto this other thing to kind of prevent those fears from being realized, I think is really interesting. Because it's not always that intentional. We don't always know, like, okay, I know what the gospel is. I'm going to intentionally leave that behind in order to embrace this. I think our fears carry a great deal of power for us. And one of the temptations as humans, especially humans who themselves practice the Christian faith or have faith in God, is to not let our fears be the ones that challenge and overcome or um, morph our picture of who God is, but rather this kind of deep and abiding trust. Now, this has obviously um, got some resonance in the whole faith over fear thing, and I'm not trying to draw comparisons there. Like, the faith over fear people... Um, right, are not uh, operating under this assumption, especially when it comes to masks and 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 COVID things, because obviously the Lord your God don't put it don't put him to the test, as what Jesus says in his own temptation, right, and that kind of thing, um, because there's a great fear there, right? There's a great fear there um, that is not being expressed um, outright, and so they are bending kind of the language of of the Bible into this theology of faith over fear. Um, that kind of permits them to um, engage in this kind of really um, uh, potentially harmful activity, uh, especially if they, you know, inf infect someone with COVID um, and they might get sick over it, you know. So it's, 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 it's unfortunate. We do this. We do this all the time. It's not just them. I mean, um, all kinds of people throughout time. You think about it in terms of Nazi Germany, right? The church's quick willingness. So, for example, Nazi uh, Germany, Hitler's first kind of major diplomatic victory was with the Catholic Church. And the agreement that he made with the Catholic Church is that they would not organize, they being the Catholic Church, would not organize against Hitler, and Hitler would kind of give them autonomy in Germany. Like, he would not interfere with them, right? 
And so the Catholic Church basically surrendered its own ability to speak out against Hitler um, in that time. And so, yet again, their fear was is that they would be outlawed like all the other churches, right? Or that they would be interfered with like, um, you know, other churches in the past. Um, and so they were able to kind of surrender or justify their own um, diplomatic um, engagement with Hitler on those grounds, right? And so our fears are the ones that ultimately move us um, into leaving behind the faith and instead taking up other stuff as well. And so it's important to see how we all struggle with this. This is, this is something I struggle with. The ways that our fears shape us into being specific kinds of people and to use Christianity towards specific ends, I think is, is, is really poignant. And it's on display here. Because the amount of people who are willing to go over to this vampire so as to not um, be subject subject to their fears anymore, um, you know, is, is pretty stark. Um, and it destroys the community. It really does. Um, because at the end, the only people that are left are the two kids. They overtake the entire town and that kind of thing. Our own fear, our own um, fear of suffering, our own fear of death, justifies us doing all kinds of things, all kinds of evil, and replacing the core of the gospel with this kind of evil, vampiric kind of thing, uh, which I think is really important. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about from this, and then we'll kind of close up here a, a little bit um, earlier than I expected, uh, even though this is not as short as I probably thought it or I intended, um, is this idea of death. I think there's this really powerful description of death and what it means to have faith as we uh, come to our own end as humans. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's on display here really well. So, for example, um, I had a professor um, in seminary named Alan Verhey um, who had a very terminal illness, and he was interviewed near the end of his life. Um, and uh, he was asked... Um, you know, what's your hope in death? Uh, you know, what, what do you kind of think about death? And he quotes the first line of the Heidelberg Catechism, and he says, um, what is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that's that is as close as you can get as to a theologically rich, biblically sound understanding of, of death, Right? I think that's that's really important and so here's what um i see in this film that points towards that reality so it first starts in a conversation um with um aaron and riley um aaron at the very early part of the film is or the series is uh pregnant um you don't really know um much about it um, she's pregnant with this, this child. She goes to checkups and things like that. But after a little while, she goes there and the baby is actually missing. Um, like no longer in the womb and come to find out, like, since this, this vampire's blood transforms you to be kind of like the best version of yourself, young, strong, vibrant, healthy, all that kind of stuff. It actually killed her baby, which is really interesting. Um, for a lot of reasons, um, there's some themes here on the Catholic church and like probably the catholic sex abuse scandal that's on apparent here um 
you know, there's there's a conversation around like civic discourse on um, abortion and things like that. But the thing that I I think is really helpful here is that um, this conversation on death, like she has this really powerful description of what she thinks happens to her baby, um, happened to her baby, and she talks about this this baby um, participating in heavenly glory and um, encountering. Um, the heavenly host and them naming her and her allowing to be able to grow up into maturity so that even when one day when Aaron finally dies, she will meet her as a, as a, as a woman, an older woman um, who has been able to live out the life that was lost to her here on this planet. Right. And embraced in the arms of Jesus and things like that. It's really powerful and beautiful. Um, this is counterposed. And this is one of the science and faith pieces is where, um, where Riley believes that, um, you know, this is all, um, the whole piece on um, like when we die, we're kind of conscious and we kind of go through our memories and we ease off into, you know, this, um, this peaceful um, death and our bodies become like one with the universe again, because matter cannot be destroyed and it can only be like, you know, um, reassigned for lack of a better term or like spread out into the cosmos. Right. Um, and so it's, it's interesting kind of, he goes with that. Um, at the end, though, they come back around to this. So she she dies, sit, lays there dying um, after basically getting all of her blood kind of sucked out of her by this um, this vampire. Um, and she's sitting there. She goes back to this theme where uh, she describes death again. Uh, and she talks about this, like, what happens when we die. It's this, it's this wish. It's this eternity. It's this kind of joining with everything, which sounds like she's capitulating to what he was saying. But she ends by saying, and I am that I am. And, and, you know, some people think that that's very sacrilegious because she's saying, I am, like her. But, you know, the more I listen to it, the more I think about it, um, the more I, I, I assume or um, the more I think that there is a theological thing happening here. Because we don't know what happens in our death. And that's one of the points that is so fearful about facing our own death, the reason why so many of the people take up the, the offer to become the vampire is that they are afraid of death, right? And faith for her is no longer the specific picture, but it is the I am that I am, right? Which is that uh, drawback to the name of God in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. I am that I am. That's kind of her abiding hope. What is your hope? in life than in death, and my body be not my own, but my precious Lord and Savior. Whatever that entails. Her kind of union with God, the I am that I am, is the peace that she actually holds on to in those final moments as she's thinking through. Um, it is her hope. Or she describes it as a wish. Um, a hope made again and again in the one who is I am that I am. And I think that's a powerful theological statement that she's making there. Um it doesn't look like anything that she could possibly articulate, but faith in God is not a faith in a picture that we would have it as the world, but a, a, a faith in the one who is and is to come, right? This is why the first line of the Heidelberg Catechism is so important. I don't think it discounts what she said earlier, but I think it is a further clarification that her hope in her life and death is not this vampire theology that's going to make her live forever, but it is in the I am who I am. I am that I am, right? 
um, as they say. And so I think that there's something to be recovered there. Maybe Mike Flanagan would not actually agree with that. And, that, and you know, that's fine, you know. I, but as I interpret it, I, I see it as like a true, a true faith. Like the, some, one of the central questions as I've identified is like, what do you put your faith in? Do you put your faith in this vampire who exists only under the veneer of religiosity and religious practice? Or do you put your faith in the one true God um, who, who, uh, whose body you hope to have in your own death, right? And so it is learning where to put one's faith in. And there at the end, like her death and kind of sacrifice itself is kind of this, this faith. Uh, and I, one of the pieces that I also really enjoyed, it was also one of the more terrifying pieces. It's when um, Riley actually rose out um, into the ocean to show Aaron, you know, the fact that he's a vampire now. So when the sun comes up, it burns him alive, right? Um, he does that, and he says that because he didn't want to try and get away or hide or chicken out or things like that. I guess he could have, like, dove into the water. Um, but still, I mean, he, he just commits to it. Like, and rather than live tethered to this vampire, he decides to to let himself die. And he does it because he wants to show Aaron that there's something wrong on the island and that he wants her to go uh, run away. But he knows that she won't, so he wants to try um, and it's really this, this powerful scene because, um, right as the sun comes up, he closes his eyes, you know, anticipation of the pain. But when he opens them on the screen, he sees the girl, the picture of the girl, uh, the, actually the body, the person, the girl whom he killed in that, um, drunk driving accident that you see at the beginning of the show. And, and one of the things that you see throughout the show is every time that Riley closes his eyes and lays down in the dark, he, he looks over and he sees the mutilated body of this young woman whom he killed in this car accident who he saw out there on the road right and he's haunted by it he has this severe guilt and regret at what he did and he just can't forgive himself for it he just can't it's the thing that haunts him the most it's the reason why he is um struggling with alcoholism because he just cannot see any value in his life because of this person he took but at that end moment when he sacrifices himself in order to save this person um, you know, that moment when he dies, he opens up his eyes, um, and he sees that girl sitting in front of him whole and full and happy. Um, and she reaches out and grabs his, his hand to take him into eternity, right? And it's this beautiful image because it's not exactly what lines up with his own description of what he thinks happens in death. It's something even more profound, right? Um here he is whole and healed and here she is whole and healed and it reminds me of one of these great articles i read uh, by Catherine sonderiger on the resurrection of the dead she talks about how in the resurrection of the dead will be almost an eternity of forgiveness um, and healing um, exchanged and received as a part of our not only the healing of our physical bodies but of our social bodies as well and here in that scene i, I see that just so poignant right before us that he opens up his eyes and he sees this person healed and whole. Right? Now, I'm not trying to make the argument that his sacrifice is what gets him into heaven. You know, we don't earn heaven. It is a gift given to us. Um, you know, and then by faith, that's the, the element that we all kind of ascribe to in the Christian tradition. But nonetheless, this is a poignant picture of, of heaven and healing and wholeness that occurs Um um, in light of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so I see that very powerfully there. And so there's just so many elements here that you could go into. 
a little bit more, but I, th I think that's that's a good place to end, um, kind of on this picture of, of death and everything. And so love to hear your thoughts on Midnight Mass and um, what you think uh, about the uh, uh, series, if you've watched it. Um, and so, yeah, just leave us a comment or a question. Maybe we could pick that up next time. Um, just a reminder, um, we will be coming back with Matrix um, as a, another MacGuffin here in the next few weeks. Um, look for episode three, which should be coming out as well on the Joker and a review of Licorice Pizza or Rocket Man. Hopefully will be on the horizon as well. Um, but look for us on social media. I am at Duke13Theo. Kyle is at Cinema1978. Um, these things are, are, uh, are out there and you can find us at our, um, at the Art House Roadshow as well. Um, before I go, um, I did want to, because uh, I had a question someone raised about if I could clarify in my Spider-Man review, um, the, uh, what I meant by the fact that, um, Spider-Man helps illustrate this idea of, like, does God mourn futures that we don't partake in, and how the Spider-Man help embody that? I think the element I was trying to point out is that, you know, going with that scholastic idea that God knows all sorts of futures that we could have taken. Every choice is a thousand roads not taken, you know, as, as I heard one poet once describe it. Um, and, you know, so for example, um, there's that example I used in the, in the spoiler heavy, um, review. If you don't want to be spoilered, um, this is probably not a good place to be at, though I did just offer a little bit about the other Spider-Man. So, um, I will I will make sure to put this in the uh, description not to not to listen to the last several minutes if you're um, uh, if you've uh, not seen Spider-Man. But I did want to clarify this because I think this is something that we need to get right. Um, Andrew Gar uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man loses Gwen Stacy. Um, Peter uh, Toby Maguire's Spider-Man uh, kills the person that kills Uncle Ben, right? Those are the choices that they take, and there are a thousand roads that they don't take as a result of that choice. Andrew Garfield doesn't get to live a future with Gwen, and it really impacts him as he confesses in his own words. Um, and Tobey Maguire um, has to live with the darkness that comes from killing that man. You know, again, really interesting stuff. And, and the powerful point on how this connects to No Way Home is that they themselves help spider-man tom holland um not have to experience what they did they cut off the road so that they don't have he doesn't have to take those roads garfield saves mj toby mcguire stops him from killing green goblin who kills aunt may and so as to celebrate the futures that they wish they had had now in the life of this person they make each other better you know by being together they make tom holland better they give him the future that they want. And I think that's a powerful, poignant piece of redemption on what it looks like for us. Like, sure, sometimes there are the roads that we wish we had have taken. Or that the roads that were cut off for us that we wish we didn't have to lose. Right? God mourns those and we should mourn those. And the thing we should do is help others um, to find a way, either through their own mourning or to help them not take the roads that you have taken, right? There's a powerful piece of redemption there. Anyway, 
Um, I just wanted to clarify that last little piece. Um, and um, again, wish you guys a happy new year. Um, please leave a review um, if you are so inclined on either Apple Podcasts or Podbean or, or wherever um, you can write a review of the podcast. Um, uh, that would be great. That would help us out in a big way. I hope your 2022 is wonderful and that you spend your New Year's with friends and family and loved ones. Um, Merry Christmas still to everyone on Christmas Tide as we continue to celebrate this season. Uh, God bless you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on Art House Roadshow. We'll see you next time.